Welcome to Grounded Content, the podcast where tactical and effective meets grounded and honest in advertising, marketing, and content creation. The conversations on this podcast can be a little meandering, but they're always enlightening. Today, we talk to Michael Roderick. He's the founder of Small Pond Enterprises and the host of the Access to Anyone podcast. He's got a simple pitch. He went from high school English teacher to Broadway producer in two years. And that pitch is a great example of what he's going to talk about. He talks about having shareable content. How do you create messages that other people want to share? You don't even need a call to action. They, on their own initiative, want to share your message. He has a series of abbreviations, steps, all of which are shareable, that will help you to create that shareable content. If you like the podcast and you like these conversations that talk not just about tactics, but also philosophy, ethics, and the big ideas around marketing and messaging, then please tell one person about the show. And if you want bonus points, go to madmotion.com slash grounded podcast and let me know what your big takeaway from today's show was. I've been listening, especially in preparation for this, to a bunch of your interviews, and I have so many follow-up questions, <laughs> but I figure I should get the audience and the listeners up to speed before I start digging into all the follow-up questions. Sure, sure. So you run Small Pond Enterprises, mm-hmm. and you have this great story. Let's. I want to let you tell that story, because one of the things I'm going to ask you about is how you package that story so beautifully and so oh. memorably. <laughs> so, yeah, so I started out as a high school English teacher and I went from being a high school English teacher to becoming a Broadway producer in under two years. Uh, so a lot of people had asked me how I had done it and I was getting my uh, master's in educational theater. And one of the things that I had learned was that simulations are a really, really powerful teaching tool. So if you have people act out a scenario, even though they're not necessarily, you know, they know that they're acting, they still act like they would in real life. So Hmm. I started hosting these workshops where I would simulate networking experiences. So I had people act out one-on-one meetings, job interviews, and cocktail parties. And at the end, I noticed a lot of patterns in terms of just how people interacted. So patterns are always the precursor to frameworks. So I built a bunch of frameworks around relationship building. And that really kind of took off where basically people just like kept asking me about this. I was described as a super connector in a bunch of like books and like all these different types of things. Uh, But then probably I'd say about four years back in the whole sort of like networking world, uh, there started to be a lot of like really sketchy stuff that was coming up, right? Where people were basically saying like, hey, you know, I'll teach you how to meet famous people and then you'll be rich. And right. And it, it was just like one of these things where it was like, I didn't want to be caught in that mess, right? Like I didn't want to just be seen as another person who's teaching networking or teaching, you know, um, relationship building, even though like that's really what I understand and I know it. So I, I took a second. I said, okay, if I took networking completely out of the equation, and if I said I didn't even think about networking, what still got me into all of the rooms that I got into? And I realized it was because people would talk about me when I wasn't in the room in a good way. So I decided to go back to the drawing board with my uh, with my research side of things and basically said, like, what if I looked at referability and what if I developed some frameworks around why are we referable as individuals? Why are ideas referable? Why are brands referable? And I'll never forget. I was doing one of my workshops and it was a networking workshop at the time two days worth of like full content stuff. And I take 15 minutes to talk about referable brand 15 minutes to be like, Hey, you know, it's just this, you know, random idea that I have 
And at the end, I give everybody the opportunity of hot seats, and every single person asked for a referable brand <laughs> to be their hot seat. So I said, "Okay, this is the uh, you know this is the work uh, that I should uh, that I should be doing." And uh, now, you know, I, I help these thoughtful givers become thought leaders through this referable brand process. And a lot of the time, if you're really good at doing for others and giving and supporting, you usually deprioritize the packaging of your intellectual property. You don't really think about it. Um, so I kind of come in as this mix between Malcolm Gladwell and Don Draper, uh, you know, for these uh, for these people <laughs> and say, you know, if your business was a Broadway show, would anybody buy a ticket? And, and so often Broadway shows are about the title, they're about how it's being presented, and they're thinking about this in regards to the audience as opposed to the writer or the individual or the person who's creating uh, the material. So I kind of bring everything uh, together through that lens. Yeah, and I love that uh, I heard you talking about this whole idea of what – well, first of all, I want to say – I want to acknowledge your disgust with that, where kind of some of this connector coaching has gone. And you see these people that show pictures of themselves with celebrities as though that's the end goal, like yeah. getting, getting photographed with a famous person. But one of the things I thought was really interesting that crosses really all kinds of content promotion and marketing is this idea of shareability, right? And you mm -hmm. you have this – AIM and you talk about what's shareable. I'd love to to dig into that a little bit. Basically, there's three main principles when you're focusing on this idea of referability and having a referable brand, right? And uh, the first is accessibility. So the first hurdle that you have is can people outside of your industry actually understand what you're talking about? Or are you in what I like to refer to as the echo chamber of the enlightened, where everybody kind of already knows all the same words. They're saying the same things to each other. So everybody's kind of like patting each other on the back in that industry. But you go to somebody who has never heard of your industry or never heard of the, those words, and they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. So that's the first hurdle. I'm going to jump in there because, for example, you used one uh, mm -hmm. when you were talking about a framework. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what does he mean by a framework? <laughs> right. And, and yep. I know in one of the interviews you said, well, you know, some people have a formula, but I have a framework. And I was like, I don't know what any of that means. Yeah, <laughs> yep. example. Exactly. And, and that's the thing. Right. So so often what you what you end up having to do is you end up having to sort of create sort of an accessibility bridge, right? Like you have to give them something to sort of anchor the idea on and then say, okay, this is how it works. And, and a lot of the time what works really well with accessibility is coming up with something that kind of everybody already knows, right? Or everybody's already heard of, or, or most people have already heard of, and then introducing your innovation on that particular thing. So I refer to this as, I call it finding your Celine, because there's this great story from uh, the book Power of Habit, where they talk about the fact that uh, Hey Ya by Outkast, when it first came out, was actually turned off on the radio almost all the time because it sounded so different than everything else. So the radio stations basically sandwiched Hey Ya in between Celine Dion and Maroon 5 and all these like pop artists who kind of have songs that all sound the same. And eventually the unfamiliar became familiar. That's so interesting. Yeah, isn't yeah. it fascinating? And then, you know, it's one of those things too where in essence what tends to happen is that we as entrepreneurs, as creatives, as people who like love to – like we feed on ideas – 
we are so interested in introducing the world to our innovation that we actually screw ourselves over because we don't hit that accessibility piece. So, so, so often we're trying to sell our hey ya to people when what we really need to do is find our Celine and then introduce them to our hey ya. So could you give me, I love that idea and I'm still like the wheels are spinning. Can you give me an example in like an entrepreneurial context sure, of sure. doing that? Yeah, so um, startups do this all the time, where what they'll do is they'll look at kind of what the startup is doing, and then they'll say, oh, well, you know, we're like the Uber, but for teacup poodles, you know? <laughs> like, that's the, that's what they'll do. They'll take this thing that we kind of already know, and then yeah. they'll introduce that slight sort of innovation on it, right? right. Uh, and this has happened in lots of different entrepreneurial ventures where, you know, somebody may come up with, they may be in leadership, Right. But leadership is one of these words that like everybody kind of says it and nobody really knows what it means. We hear the word and we're like, okay, yeah, I guess. Um, but then, you know, somebody puts servant in front of it and all of a sudden we have a completely different way of thinking about it. And the more that you start to think about like what is that anchor for people and entertainment does this really, really well, because if you look at pretty much any film that you've ever that you've ever seen, it's hearkening back to some piece of source material, whether it be a book, whether it be uh, a famous myth or a famous story, like it always harkens back to something that we already recognize. And even if we look at Disney, right, and how Disney kind of grew as much as they did, well, it's because they started with source material that parents already knew knew we already knew about fairy tales we just didn't know them in the way that disney decided to you know sort of craft them you know craft them for us but we all knew the stories of those fairy tales or felt like we knew the stories of those fairy tales that makes so much sense the that anchor in that context so now i yeah. pulled you off of the aim that's no a, accessibility yeah. Now, yeah. now let's jump into the i yeah so the second is influence and the thing that most of us get wrong about influence uh, and this is mainly because for for years we've only ever learned about in influence in in the context of persuasion right and we've learned about influence in the context of persuasion because there's been so much content that talks about how we influence people by persuading them but ultimately, if you look at real influence, true influence is when you do something without me asking you to. If I have caused you to share something or talk about something or, you know, introduce me to someone without saying, can you do this, then you have been influenced by my ideas, by my concepts, by my personality, whatever, you know, the scenario, the scenario is. But at the heart of it, why do we do that? It's because we get something out of it. We share because it makes us look better. So most of the time when we're thinking about influence, a lot of people are thinking about how do I get you to do this? And what you really should be thinking is like, how do I make you look so good when you share my ideas that it just keeps referring back to me? And that's, that's really one of the aspects of this packaging that is often just forgotten about, that people don't necessarily take a lot of time to think about, to say like, well, wait a second. How will somebody else look when they're explaining this? Right? And so I know you talked about some of the elements of that, right? Making it simple and mm -hmm. memorable. That's important, right? Yep. But um, everybody's motivated by different things. Yeah. How do you, how do you make that assessment? Yeah. So a lot of the time it's, it's paying attention to the market and seeing like how the market reacts when you do something. Right. So one of my biggest uh, indicators is unprovoked response. 
So if I don't give you a call to action, if I don't say I would love your opinions on this and you respond without me asking you to, then I know I've probably hit on something. And I write a daily email, right? So I write Monday through Friday. And one of the best ways for me to know which topics I probably have not scratched the surface on is when people start emailing me back without me asking them to saying, oh my God, this, this just changed the way that I thought about things, or that's, this is so interesting, or they come up with like a bunch of questions about it. It tells me, oh, there is so much more to mine here. There's so much more to find. And if you're, if you're a speaker in particular, if you want to, if you want to start to get a handle on this, what I think is probably the most important thing is at the end of a presentation to ask people, what were their takeaways? Mm -hmm. And most of the time, the, the, the mistake that we make is we say any questions at the end of a presentation. And if people are feeling completely overwhelmed or if people feel like they, it, they might look awkward by asking a question, they won't ask a question. But if you say, could you just tell me like, what is one thing that you took away? Like what is one thing that really kind of stood out to you, et cetera. And you start to notice like, 10 people tell you the same thing from that talk, you know that that's, that's a tagline. That's a highlight. That's something that other people are going to share and they're, they're going to talk about with their friends. And it's they're probably going to do it because it makes them look better by describing that particular thing or that particular idea. That's so interesting. And, you know, because when I work with podcasters and I'm helping them improve their messaging and their skills with that, one of the things we talk about is how do you get good feedback and I I love what you're what you're suggesting. I've done the opposite, which is to say, you know, when you play your podcast for friends, they're going to say it's great because they're your friends and they want to yep. support you. Yep. But ask them, what's one thing you would change? Mm. And that's good because you get real feedback. But I love yeah. where you're going because it still doesn't take you to the essential, like the most powerful thing that you have in there, yep. which you're doing. It, it's like you you do this huge amount of source testing. Yes. And I think, um, have you been on Clubhouse? Because I feel like yes. for podcasters, Clubhouse <laughs> is such a great way to see what works with people, right? Exactly. Yeah. And did you see like, are people, you know, staying in the room? Are they leaving the room? Right. Um, you know, the, the, it's so fascinating because the social dynamics of, uh, of podcast are hilarious because it follows the unconference model of the law of two feet, right? Where anybody can just walk out if they're not interested. Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, and they don't have to tell you, they don't have to be like, right. Oh, I'm so sorry. I have to leave. So like, you can literally see are people staying because they're engaged and they're interested or are they leaving? And right. if you notice like tons of people are just walking out, then chances are there's something that's not really hitting, you know, in terms of that content, there's something that's not really kind of working uh, as far as that content's co content's concerned. The other point uh, that you brought up that I think is really, really important is that so, so often our friends fall into sort of that echo chamber of the enlightened, right? Where it's like, they already know podcasting. They already sort of understand podcasting. They like that. So their critiques and their feedback are, are going to be sort of uh, within that realm of podcast ideas. I think, you know, just like can completely change your trajectory is to go to people who are not in your industry at all and basically say like, here's what this idea is and just ask them like, what are your thoughts? What are your reactions? I tell this to entrepreneurs all the time when I'm working with clients and we're talking about sort of positioning and offering. I will say, I want you to go to somebody who is not in your industry. I want you to use whatever your tagline is, whatever you're saying, 
And then all I want you to do is ask them to say it back to you in their own words. And I want you to see how much they actually understood. And so many times they like they think they're telling their audience something. They think they're selling one thing. And when they do that exercise, they go back to that person and they're like, they're like, oh, my God, I had no idea. You know, I thought I was selling this, but I'm actually in the business of selling this. You know, it's so interesting because so I started this podcast and I really wanted to talk. I called it grounded content. I really want to talk about, you know, I'm sort of like the Vermont lady. Right. And yet I understand sort of tactics and strategy. Uh, but I feel like there is there is the opportunity to be both right, to be grounded, yeah. to be real, to be genuine, but also to be effective. And that's kind of my my theory. But I have had this conversation like I did with you. I tell people up front, well, we're going to talk a little bit about ethics because it's part of the conversation. Totally. And in the first five interviews I did, when I got to that question, the person was surprised. Yeah. And when I said, like, well, you know, where are the lines between persuasion and manipulation, for example? Mm. Yep. And they had only thought about, like, well, it's ethical if the product I'm selling is a good product. And I wanted to say, like, are there tactics, even if it's a good product, that are not ethical? It's, so it's yeah. just so interesting because what I thought I was warning them of ahead of time was not what they were hearing at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's one of those things where so often we think that we're giving people enough of an explanation because we know our subject so well. Right. So we give them our shorthand and we expect them to be like, oh, yeah, well, you, you you've got it right. Like you understand it. And most of the time they don't like most of the time we really need to spend more time explaining and more time kind of breaking this down and and helping people sort of understand what the reality is, you know, as opposed to, you know, again, here's our shorthand. Here's our like simple way. Uh, here's how we understand it, you know, kind of uh, kind of scenario. It's almost like that first conversation is like the index, right? And then, yes. and then, and then you have to like, then you have to watch their face, or 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 they have to take the responsibility to ask those follow up questions and and dig in. Yeah. And now I I've once again diverted you, right? So no we worries. got the A and the I. I well, yep. I love this because honestly, to your point, you do a fantastic job at really packaging the essential parts because you've clearly practiced and you've clearly mm -hmm. honed your message and you've clearly, you tell it in a way that's compelling and memorable and shareable and all of that. But so I listened to you tell this story a few times on different podcasts and there yeah. were a bunch of times where I was like, why didn't the interviewer ask this follow-up question, you know? Yeah. So it's great to see how you present it and then have the opportunity to kind of dig that next next layer down. It's so, it, it, it's one of these things where we have different areas of curiosity, right? And sort of each person has a different area that they want to sort of explore more, they want to go deeper into. So for some people, especially hosts, especially, they have like their trajectory of curiosity, right? And they're like, okay, I, I want to make sure that I cover these points, right? And they're like dead on with that. And then there are others who are like, I can't go on unless I get this question answered. And, and they can't move. They can't move past unless they get that question answered. So, I, I mean, I've literally had interviews where we haven't gotten through all of the all of the points because we spent almost the entire time on, you know, discussing accessibility or discussing influence or, you know, discussing memory. Uh, so, like, there's there's lots of instances where our sort of curiosity, um, basically, depending on the like the type of host, if you're a hyper curious host, you can spend a lot of time in one particular, you know, in one particular area. But I think that's why we listen 
I, honestly, I think that's why we listen to different podcasts, right? We want to hear different people's curiosity points and sort of how they decide to unpack something or think about something. Yeah, exactly. And if you if you do your job well as an interviewer, as a host, people can feel you know you, you're a, you're a proxy for them but they also they they get your point of view mm -hmm. not so much from you saying things but from you asking things yes yeah and i've often said that you know one of the best ways to show your expertise as opposed to tell people your expertise is to focus on your questions interesting yeah the more that you think about the questions that you ask and how you get people to think as a result of those questions the more they're like wow you really know your stuff Right. I think people are afraid to ask questions mm -hmm. because they they don't want to look foolish. Exactly. So we are now on M. Yep. I believe. Did we finish I? Yes, we did. Yep. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So now we're on memory. And the way that I like to think about memory is if you want people to remember you more, you focus on less. L-E-S-S. -S. And that's language, emotion, simplicity, and structure. So the first is language. And the core reason why uh, we all know who Shakespeare is, but if you were to ask most people or a large number of people who didn't study any sort of literature who Christopher Marlowe is, and most people will kind of give you a blank stare, is that Shakespeare added new words to the English language. So like if we go into the dictionary, we'll actually see words that Shakespeare created. So now imagine you're in Stratford-upon-Avon, Right. And you're walking around and you're using these new words and everybody's like, where did you learn those words? Well, which plays are you going to? Right. Where like how is that going to sort of refer back? And most of the time what tends to happen is that we don't create our own language for things because it's not easy. Right. It's not a straightforward thing. So most of the time what we'll do is we'll use somebody else's phrase or we'll use something else that we saw or whatever to get our point across because it takes effort to create our own language. And beyond that, it also takes being willing to going back to what you were talking about with the podcast and, and asking questions. It takes being willing to fall on your face. And have a word that you coin or a phrase that you come up with that people are like, wow, that is really stupid. <laughs> and I'm not really interested in hearing that, you know, whatever it is, right? Like it takes that extra step uh, to be able to create your own language and sort of, you know, help with that. Um, and then, you know, in addition to the language, which helps sort of solidify things in people's memory, there's emotion. And when we're in heightened states of emotion, we tend to remember more details because in primitive days, if we didn't, we would die. If we didn't remember where the danger came from, if we didn't have the exact detail, then we would walk by that same place again and eventually get eaten, right? So we needed to remember that time that that thing chased us and where exactly it chased us. So when we're in heightened states of emotion, we tend to remember more detail. And now, the way when that, you say yeah. heightened states of emotion, is that you know, we all know that it works with fear. And we've seen yes. that in the news and we see that in the media. Are yep. there other emotions that, oh, that totally. it works with? Yeah. Um, so sadness is, is, is a perfect one, right? So uh, the example that I often like to give um, around that one is if you asked anybody, what are the opening scenes of the movie Titanic? They cannot give you any details. But if you say that to that same person, which image comes to mind when I say I'll never let go? See, I'm terrible because I yeah. have not seen this movie. 
<laughs> so it's okay. It's okay. Basically, the I'll never let go moment is towards the end of the end of the film, and I don't want to reveal anything. I don't want to spoil it for you, right? But it's a very emotional moment in the movie. So if you are invested in these characters, hearing that line should give you a pretty intense sort of emotional emotional state, right? Interesting. You know, another way to think about it too. If um, you're not thinking about it in the context of entertainment and you just think about it in the context of your own life, and this is actually really good for writers, think of a moment in your life that was like one of the saddest and one of the hardest moments, and you are far more likely to be able to give me details and specific details than if I said, think about, you know, what happened yesterday at 10 a.m. Now, what about joy or are those memorable as well? Same same like if you think about when you laugh so hard that you like just like couldn't stop laughing you can remember those details those details will flood up for you because emotion helps solidify our memories right so if so you how have this, do you like, use those yeah. in your um i'm sorry to interrupt oh no worries yeah I, this is the hassle with the virtual interview it's uh, we're always speaking over each other i feel like but <laughs> so how do you harness that emotion in the, your formula one of the best ways to harness that emotion is to use what i what i like to think of as like a writer's sense memory so in the acting world there's sense memory where basically if you're in an acting class your acting teacher will say to you remember this like horrible moment in your life And they'll like take you there and they'll make you sort of image, like imagine yourself back at that time. And then they'll be like, okay, now that you were feeling like you're about to ball, do the scene. And they'll have you act out that particular scene. So writing sense memory is you say to yourself, okay, let me take myself mentally back to this really intense moment in my life or this really emotional moment in my life. And now I'm going to write about that particular experience, but through the lens of what I'd like to teach people. And what I'd like to help them with. And you, because you are feeling it while you're writing it, most people are also going to also feel it, especially if they've had a similar experience. So if I write about a really intense experience for me, what's going to happen is that emotion is going to bubble up for the other, you know, for the other people who have had that same kind of experience or a similar experience. So now what happens in that moment is that the brain becomes like a sponge and it remembers all of the details. And this is why in so many of the Ted talks that you see and so many of like the larger scale presentations that are out there, there is this heightened sort of emotional moment at the top of the talk. Because now we're open, we're vulnerable, and we're ready to hear whatever Mm. the concept is, whatever the idea is. So you'll notice a lot of the talks that end up being shared the most and end up being very, very popular usually have some kind of dynamic within them that sort of has an emotional component and opens the audience up. All the way down to just like, you know, if it's very funny at the beginning, right, it really kind of changes that, uh, that kind of dynamic. Interesting. Yeah. We got through AIM, right? And we're Uh, under the subcategory of M. This is an audio podcast, but I'm like delineating this with my hands here. (laughs) And now we're into less. Yes. And we've got the L and the E. So what are the two S's? So the next is the, the the next S is simplicity. And simplicity is a really interesting one because all of our lives, academics have always rewarded complexity. 
So if you were in school, you were rewarded for writing the biggest paper, for using the biggest words. You were considered the smart kid if everything that you said people couldn't understand. Right. That was just like the dynamic. Love that. So true. (laughs) Right. And the interesting thing is this carries over into the business and the marketing world because people will try to sort of make things overly complex to show how smart they are, to show how interesting they are, to show how cool they are, et cetera. But the issue with that is that the memory rewards simplicity because our memory can only hold so much information. So if I, you know, if I did this presentation, you know, if I was, if, if I was doing a presentation, I was like, Hey, you know, here are the hundred things that you need to remember to create a referable brand for yourself. I'd be dead in the water. Nobody would share it. Nobody would talk about it. Right. Because it's just too much for the brain to carry. So we often have to take the time to say, okay, how do I break this down and how do I make it simple? for people to understand. And that's where that leads to the last, the last piece, which is structure. Mm-hmm. Because if you give people a structure, if you give them something to follow, then they are significantly more likely to remember the material, right? Cause we need, our brains need to order things. Like we need to know, like this comes first, this comes second, this comes third. Like we need to be able to order things. We need to be able to sort of keep that, that stuff in a structure. And when we do that, it makes it so much easier. And that just ties to making it even simpler for people. Because if they can say, you know, for example, even with this accessibility, influence and memory spells the word aim, it's going to be hard for you to forget that. Right. Because there's the structure and there's a simplicity there. Now, I can take each of those points and we can dig deeper into each of them. And there can always be complexity within the simplicity. But again, the simplicity is our Celine. Right. All of the complexity that I'm talking about, about accessibility, influence and memory. Those that's my hey, yeah. Right. That's that. Those are my innovations. That's my bigger. That, that's my bigger thing. But in order for you to remember it, in order for you to share it, you got to be like, you know what? It's aim. <laughs> He's got this aim thing. You just got to talk to him about it. <laughs> you know, I know you started out in this networking world, right? Mm-hmm. Helping people to use this for networking. Mm-hmm. And what I love is each stage in your process, you sort of pull the lessons from one thing and move them into the into the next. And you yes. kind of like keep getting more and more essential in, in the elements. But so now that you have this framework or this structure, how do people apply this? It basically comes down to uh, first, you've got to look at the accessibility question and you've got to make sure that you are actually getting across to people what it is that you do. And one of the best tools for that, I call it giving yourself an F. Uh, Because most of the time when we are describing what we do, we describe what we do. And what we really need to do is describe what we do for. So we got to give ourselves that F. Like, what am I actually doing for the client? Because if we don't have an understanding of that, accessibility is going to be really difficult because we're not going to be able to explain it. We're going to tell them all the details. We're going to tell them all the logistics about what it is that we do. But they don't care about that. They care about what is it going to do for them. But once you've kind of nailed that down... Then you need what I like to refer to, and this is on the influence side, you need what I like to refer to as the magic trick. So if you've ever been to a party, there are magicians. Uh, And, you know, a magician will have a ton of tricks that uh, that they can show you, but they always have at least one trick that they will show you the trick and then they'll show you exactly how they did it. So then what is the thing that you like to do if you've learned how to do a magic trick? 
well, the next time you're at a party, you probably do the trick, right? Because it makes you look cool. It makes you look interesting. So most of the time when we're thinking about our content, we're not thinking about what is something I could give people that they could then take and then show to somebody else and it would make them look cool. So can I come up with an archetype system that sort of helps people understand like who they are? And, and what they are. So one of my most recent ones, um, and I don't even know how many, uh, I think I've spoken about this maybe on one or two interviews so far, um, is the idea of referability partners instead of referral partners. So when we think referral partners, we think in the context of somebody who is going to send me business or send me, you know, or send me money, basically, right? Like they're, they're, that's their sort of like function in sort of this like referral world. But we also have referability partners. And referability partners are people who actually make us more referable or give us bigger opportunities. And we are all referability partners for the people within our networks. So there's three types. And easy to remember because you think about tapping into this. So it's TAP, right? There are translators, there are angels, and there are producers. So the translators are the people who are really, really good at listening to what other people are talking about and saying, this is what you do. <laughs> this is how it works. You know, they're, they're the ones who take all the complex information and come up with like, this is how to say it. The angels are the people who are the connectors, who basically see opportunities and say, okay, you should be on this person's podcast or you should do this thing. And they thread those people together. And the producers are the people who understand how intellectual property is exploited, right? How larger audiences get to understand and know that intellectual property. So producers are people who are like more, they're more business minded. They think more in the context of like, how could this be a bigger thing? So translators usually are not thinking like producers and they're usually not thinking like angels or don't really have the abilities of angels. So they need to find angels and producers in their lives so that they're not just, you know, sharing their brilliance to five people. So I love this idea and I have two two big follow-ups here. Yeah. Uh, so one is, you know, you talked about this idea of getting out of your bubble and I would guess that most translators are friends with translators. Yeah. Most angels are friends with angels and yep. most producers are friends with producers. Yep. How do you find those people in many many cases it's first kind of looking outside of your industry right so diversifying the number of people the types of people that you're meeting right so let's say you're in marketing well chances are a lot of the people you're going to be introduced to in marketing are going to be translators right and they're and that's going to be at the heart of most of their work so if you said to one of your friends in marketing hey I'm really curious, do you know anybody who is outside of sort of this like marketing messaging world and who really focuses on like the aspect of scaling a business or growing a business? Well, they're going to introduce you to somebody who has more of that producer mindset, right? They're going to introduce you to somebody who has sort of more of that, more of that connection. With angels, you can literally just say to somebody, listen, I'm, I'm curious, do you know anybody who it just seems like they always are introducing you to people? I would just love to talk to somebody who like does that all the time. And everybody knows somebody who's like that. The interesting thing is you, you pointed it out. Translators usually are friends with translators. Angels are usually friends with angels. Producers are usually friends with producers. So you literally find one of each of those categories to be introduced to, and you're going to be able to be introduced to even more of those people in those categories. 
so I think that that people hang out with or spend time with the people that are within their category because it's comfortable. Exactly. So how does somebody bridge that gap? And, you know, how would they start or initiate that conversation outside of their kind of their type? So I think it, it comes down to the fact that we're people not like what we do. So like so, so often, like most conversations only live in the realm of the professional, right? So we get these calls and we have these conversations and it's all about like, you know, what do you do and how do you work with your clients and all this other stuff. And for for people who are sort of intellectually curious, that is the most boring conversation imaginable. The thing is, you can talk to people about more than just the professional. You can talk to them about the personal the places that they live, the movies that they like, the things that they're interested in. There's all sorts of like little touch points where you can just have a, you know, a bit more of a conversation. But you can also talk to people about the inspirational, which is what inspires them. You know, we we always ask people all the time what they do, but how often do we ask them why they do it? Like why do they even care? Right? Uh, and you know, when we do that, we can crack open that conversation and get into a lot of things and often find a lot of commonalities, right? But then there's also the aspirational where it's like, okay, what does this person aspire to? Like, what's their next thing? What are they hoping for? Like, what's their, you know, big thing? And then, you know, in addition to that, we can talk about the problematic, right? So we can talk about what are those challenges? What are those issues that are coming up? But I, I always leave the problematic for last because I don't think it's a very smart idea to ever start a conversation with how can I help you? and asking somebody to like unload their problems at the very beginning because you don't necessarily know yet a if you like each other and b if you can trust each other so you don't want to start from a place of like putting this other person down and being like how can i help you because you're just you know a peon in comparison to me like you literally like that's what you're communicating when you open with a with that but if you get to know them and get to understand them a lot of the time by the time you get to the end of that conversation you don't even have to ask how can i help because right. you know them so well at this point that you're like oh well here's an idea for you here's a thought of somebody it might be good for you to talk to or something, you know, that would be helpful. Yeah, I have a friend who says that the question, and this is just in personal life, that the question he hates the most is when people say, how can I help you? And he says, like, if you have to ask, you know, whether it's doing the dishes or taking out the garbage or whatever, like pick up the bag. Yeah. You know, if you're asking, you're not really interested in helping, which is yep. an interesting take on it. So which... Which one are you? I look at it from that like angelic translator type of uh, type of standpoint. And I have friends who are producers who help me figure out, okay, well, from a business standpoint, how do you sell this, right? Like, how do you, you know, what is the business model that you decide to use, um, you know, in the, you know, presentation of it, in the, in the way that you work with clients, all of those different types of things. I talk to those people who've spent more time, you know, in that area, as opposed to trying to learn it all myself. I feel like angelic translator probably go together a lot because if you if you pull out those essential ideas, like at least for me, like I sort of hear an essential idea or an essential need from a person and then that automatically kind of brings you to connecting people mm -hmm. and idea like all those connections kind of overlap. Yeah. So I, I am gonna ask you a closing question. And that is, you know, we, we talked earlier about this whole idea of ethics. And one of the things that I've seen in especially in the marketing, the messaging, and, and actually the sort of like the coaching and networking business, mm -hmm. you know, especially people who come into it and they start to learn these frameworks mm -hmm. or they start to learn these like story structures that work or they learn like the Cialdini like persuasion mechanisms. Yeah. And they see the power of them 
And it's almost like it's almost like a kid trying drugs the first time. You yeah. know, they haven't thought about it in advance. Yep. They see this tremendous power and they don't sort of put in place checks and balances. Yeah. Yep. Do you think if there was a piece of guidance that you think people should have or sort of a, a way they should think about it in advance, what would that be? I think probably the best the best thing is to ask yourself if somebody were to do that to me how would i feel and be very very honest with yourself so whatever it is that you're going to test out or, or or try you know say okay well if if somebody followed that per process for me and then i learned that that was what it was like how would i feel and and would i be okay with it and i think that you know, the other the other big piece is to sort of think through what is the sort of what is the ultimate, you know, what is the ultimate purpose? Like, what are you trying to you know, what are you trying to accomplish here? And, you know, it's one of those things where a lot of the time, I think sometimes we we get so worried about being like the people who are sketchy that the pendulum swings way too far the other way. And we don't actually use the tools that will help us get the message out there, support the people that we want to support, do the things that we want to do. So I think it's a matter of the my main point of advice, I think, would be about that idea of don't allow the pendulum to swing too far back the other way and end up in obscurity because you're so worried about becoming becoming the villain. I love that. And I love, you know, I, I was thinking about, you know, I didn't think it would come up in the conversation and I may edit it out because it's too obscure. But in one of the interviews, you talked about this literary criticism that you loved of like finding the spaces, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And I think that's exactly what you did right there was like, what's the thing people are not saying about this? And yep. it's such a great insight for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah, the the whole sort of Marxist, yeah, the Marxist literary criticism idea where it's just like, you know, what are the gaps in the silences? And it is so valuable to look at what are the gaps in the silences. I mean, there's so much opportunity in business to basically look at whatever every, everything that's happening and say, what are people not doing? You know, I think so often we look to be like, what are people doing? Like, how do I be like that? And I think it's so much more powerful to be like, well, what are people not doing? You know, what does that look like? <laughs> That's a great a great place to close. I think that's yeah. that's our closing line. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us. And thank you, Jeffrey Madoff, for making the introduction. And thank you, of course, most of all, for listening to this episode of the Grounded Content Podcast. You can find lots more information about podcasting and about creativity and all the episodes of this podcast on my website at madmotion.com or madmotion.com slash groundedpodcast. And if you want to do one thing to support this effort, please tell one friend about the podcast. Thanks. See you next time.